my name is Artie Ann Bates. I'm a physician. I'm a psychiatrist in Letcher County. And I'm very much in favor of single payer or um, government-sponsored health care because it works more efficiently than our current system. Um, part of the problem now is that insurance companies have too big a say in how health care is delivered and determined. Um, patients are often denied care because insurance companies through managed care organizations will not approve it. Um, and there are deaths related to that. So it is a crisis. Um, and something needs to be done right away. And it's good that we're having this discussion. We're not there yet. Um, the Affordable Care Act is a big start. But I think until people at least have an option to not have health insurance um, managed through an insurance company, then we don't really have equitable health care for all people. So. Perfect. Thank you. I'm Alice, um, and I live in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and I want to support single-payer health care because I believe that health care is a human right and shouldn't be tied to how much money you have in your pocket or in your bank account. Um, I think that we, as uh, people living in Appalachia, have seen a lot of health care issues um, due to environmental concerns, due to other concerns, and we deserve um, government, fully government-funded health care like they have in every other industrialized democratic country in the world um, and I think that we need to dream big and dream beyond the ACA and actually advocate for something bigger and better yeah. Thank you. Hey I'm Eric This uh, I live in Knott County Kentucky and you know we live in the wealthiest richest country in the history of the world right we have the ability to deliver health care to every person that needs it. To me, it is unconscionable to force someone to make a decision between paying a bill or buying medicine or paying, uh, you know, putting food on the table and paying for health care. The market should not be how we determine who gets health care. Full stop. It is, it is a moral position for me. It's just everyone deserves health care. We need to build a system that, that delivers that. So that's why I support single payer. <laughs> okay. okay. So you're here at the Eastern Kentucky Rally for Health Yes. And Randy Wilson encouraged you to, to come down. Yes, and I also knew about it through Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Okay. Um, and, and, and what did you learn today uh, from speakers at the stage? Oh. It was a wonderful opportunity to listen to a variety of people from a variety of places in Eastern Kentucky. I really appreciated the diversity of voices. Um, we heard from elected officials. We heard from people who have been battling health concerns their whole life and are dependent on good health care coverage um, and whose lives will be at risk without it. Very powerful stories. We heard songs. We heard poems. We heard from doctors um, across the board from all different counties. And I think 
um, I learned, and uh, from labor organizers as well, um, and I think I learned that there is a breadth of people that are going to fight for this, and that's very inspiring. Um, and I learned some specific things that I can do, especially with advocating for um, for some healthcare changes on, on the state level that are on the forefront that may not be as well known about. Um, Was that the, uh, the Medicaid uh, waiver issues that uh, Bev talked about and others? Yes, 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 yes. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm walking away with inspiration to continue to advocate for healthcare reform in whatever way that I can and a sense that um, it is something that we all need and we all need to be fighting for across the board. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Happy birthday, Medicare. Yes. Eat some cake. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, we're here at the uh, healthcare rally at Pikeville. Uh, we've had a pretty good crowd here. I don't know. Uh, 50, 100 uh, seemed like a good crowd. We had some great uh, poetry and uh, songs and speakers here. So it was a good day. It's turned out really nice. Uh, we're talking about health care, health care issues. It's uh, as uh, I sing in the song, we've been a long time traveling and hard is the road, but you still got a right to the tree of life. So we're still working on this health care thing. State and... Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Republicans did everything they could to obstruct this kind of uh, movement toward health care for all. And uh, so that, uh, when they got a chance, they, they can't, they can't, they can't be able to repeal it or, or make any any constructive offers so we're still working on that and uh, the thing is uh, you know we, we felt like a, we don't need to repeal it but to uh, to uh, fix it and um, if there's a certain I mean right now it's still not it's still not really good health care I don't feel that even the uh, Affordable Health Care Act there's just so many people that I know if you reach a certain threshold in your uh, pay you are up a creek without a paddle. It's very hard if you have children, several children, if you reach a certain threshold in pay, then you're, you're paying astronomical prices for those premiums every month, and, and, and what you're getting for them is not that great either. So it, it needs a lot of work. It needs to be expanded, not just, uh, uh, you know, nixed. Uh, I feel, and uh, so, you know, we've been for this single-payer thing for a long time, uh, one, one, one streamlined way of, of, of paying for people's health care, and that's why, you know, we're, we want to move in that direction, uh, because they could not get uh, what they wanted through uh, the, the government uh, on the federal level, we're hoping that it will give a little bit more momentum to people to look at options for health care. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, it, uh, the, I felt like the Affordable Care Act has helped people who uh, were unable to pay, you know, low-paying jobs or uh, in desperate situations. It really, as, as the gal talked today, it gave her an opportunity to live and to pay her medical bills and her prescriptions and when she was trying to decide whether, you know, prescriptions or, or electric bill, you know, so, but. 
for middle-income people like uh, Van Breeding talked about, you know, the doctor, the rural doctor of the year. Uh, it's really tough to meet those premiums and you're not getting a whole lot for it. So we need to expand it and look for ways to work together. And I, I hope that, you know, Republicans and Democrats, uh, Democrats do look for ways to look together and, uh, at, at options. Good deal. Thank you, Randy. Uh, I'm with a uh, community radio station up in the Louisville area, okay. and uh, also a member of Kentuckians for single-payer health care, and we also do a single-payer radio show each week. Would you want to talk about why you came out today and what you learned from folks from the state? Sure. You, you'd have to talk. Okay. You're the talker. Okay. And I just want to give your name and uh, where you're from. Okay. My name is Scott Robinson from Pikeville, Kentucky. And Scott, um, you all played some really great tunes here this afternoon. Thank you very much. Um, and you spoke about uh, some of the health care issues and you personalized it. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you came out today? Yes, uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I have been since I'm, I was 5 years old. So with type 1 diabetes, it's an autoimmune disorder and uh, it's just something uh, you can't really get away from every day. You've got to take insulin. You've got to be on top of it. So it's, it's a costly thing to have when it comes to getting insulin and uh, just getting the right supplies. I'm thankful that you know there's a lot of research and funding that goes into making life more manageable, but uh, in recent years we've seen insulin costs go up astronomically for some folks. Uh, just earlier this year, one vial of no, uh, Novolog insulin that I took was around $275. And uh, you know, there's stories of some folks who have you know maybe lost their jobs and you know didn't have healthcare to pay for it. And uh, there's there's actually stories of some folks dying because they couldn't make their dosage stretch. So you know, there's definitely issues with the pharmaceutical industry there. And uh, you know, I was here to raise my voice today for those concerns going forward uh, to make out-of-pocket costs for insulin and diabetic supplies, making them more manageable and more livable. Because a lot of people with type one are juveniles and children, and uh, you know, it's a struggle for families to make ends meet around here in Appalachia. So we want to lift our voices for those who continue to fight forward with that. Okay, well, thanks for the info, and keep the fight going, and good luck with with uh, your diabetes. Thank you. Take Absolutely. care. My name's Cleo Turkey. I live at uh, Virgie Rockhouse Fork of Virgie, Kentucky. And when I was like six years old, I got a real bad burn. And I, Mom and Dad took me to Jenkins Hospital. They put a bandit on it and said that I did not have any insurance they couldn't admit me. And after about a week, it was a rotten. I mean, I could smell it. I was young, but I can remember the scent. And they took me to uh, Dr. Roy Sanders at Dorton. And he called Pikeville Hospital. Uh, one that's over there now, it was a different name, man. He called them and made a arrangement for them to make payments for them to admit me to the hospital. I stayed there six months. And 
During that six months, they paid ten dollars a month. What time I was in there, and they paid on that. And I really forgot about it. And in 1984, they were still paying that ten dollars a month. Uh, you know, ten dollars now—that's no money. But ten dollars in 1966—that was a lot of money for somebody that worked for minimum wage jobs. My my dad lost his eyesight in the army, and you know he worked. That whatever he could get, he made minimum wage. And, you know, it's, no family should have to go through that. Insurance should go to everybody. We've not got a fire playing field. Well, when somebody is sick, they've got no chance in life. They've got no chance of ever getting ahead. I mean, think about it. Money, money, <laughs> what runs this country? And if you're paying it out for Dr. Bills, you're not going to succeed in life. I quit school when I was in the ninth grade. And the biggest reason I quit school, I was offered a job. I knew if I went on to school, high school would have been hit for me. That, that was it. There was, no, there was no funding around then like they are now. This part of the country's come a long way. We can't go back to what it was. Okay. My name is Rob Music, and I am with the community of Pikeville. I'm a clergy person in Pikeville, and what I see is a lot of our community who are working poor, who are struggling. Even this morning, I was talking with one of our staff members at the university. She's working multiple jobs. Her husband has cancer. She's got some heart issues going on. She works two jobs, and she makes ten bucks an hour. But two hundred and sixty dollars out of a, you know, you know, out of a paycheck is a massive amount for health care, and that's still with a high deductible. And what I'm seeing a lot of are people who are genuinely trying to move forward in life, but constantly being set back, you know, with any kind of health problem. And for me, it's it's a tragedy because we, we demonize people, right? And we say, oh, they're lazy or this or this. But no, like the people I'm legitimately seeing are really working hard and are just getting setback after setback after setback. And so for me as a clergy person, I've really been trying to rack my brain why other fellow, fellow clergy people are not seeing this as a moral issue uh, of doing God's work, right? You know, and I, as I was talking about today, I feel like we get so distracted by otherworldly things that we're really forgetting about this world and how people are suffering right now, and they're really living hell. When you're sick and you can't get quality care, and you're wondering about are you going to be able to pay for your kids' books for school and school shoes or go to the doctor, I mean, we're better than that. I mean, our country, there is more than enough for us. So for me, that's been the fundamental issue. And So I guess I just invite any kind of clergy person to begin to speak about this, make this a Sunday morning conversation or a Friday prayer kind of conversation to start talking about health care and why it's the core part of who we are as people of faith. Fantastic. Thank you very much. What's your name, sir? Oh. Mary Hope Camp, Louisville. And what have I learned from this rally? Well, there were a lot uh, I was already told that I already know. But what I have learned was how much people have suffered for the healthcare system, why we need to replace it with a reformed single-payer national health insurance. Things are just that bad. People are suffering, or have been suffering and dying. And things are improving, partly because, or I say namely because, uh, the Medicare uh, and Medicaid provisions and the uh, 
Obamacare and uh, American or ACA. And we need to uh, protect it and improve it and expand it to having a national health insurance plan. Good deal. Thanks, Larry. That's enough. Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current train wreck system that values profits over patients and leaves half of us in medical debt. And we're a long-standing community partner with WFMP 1065 Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. If you miss a show, you can listen to any of those episodes at forwardradio.org slash singlepayer. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. Now, the Medicare program was signed into law on June 30, 1965. Healthcare advocates are gathering in D.C. this July 30th to celebrate Medicare and rally for Medicare for All. Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare is coordinating free transportation to the rally. Email Kay Tillo, she's our chairperson, if you'd like to go. Kay's email address is nursenpo at aol.com. Nurse npo at aol.com. There's uh, more information up on the website at kyhealthcare.org. That's Kentucky or kyhealthcare.org. Join us. And earlier this month on May 12th, the U.S. Senate Budget Committee held a hearing on the proposed Medicare for All program. And this week on our episode, we're broadcasting part of that hearing. Committee Chairperson Bernie Sanders begins. Thank the committee members who are here. Uh, Let me thank the panelists who are here. I think all are here in person. I think we'll have one virtually. Let me thank all of you for attending the very first U.S. Senate 
Committee hearing on Medicare for All. Uh, let me also thank the many dozens of organizations throughout our country who support Medicare for All and the tens of thousands of doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who support this legislation. Uh, let me thank the 15 Senate co-sponsors uh, that we have on this bill and 122 members of the House who support very similar legislation. And mostly, let me thank the American people who by the millions understand, as I do, that our current health care system is dysfunctional, it is extraordinarily wasteful and expensive, and it is cruel. The American people understand, as I do, that health care is a human right and not a privilege, and that we must end the international embarrassment of our great country being the only major nation on earth that does not guarantee health care as a human right to all of its people. It is not acceptable to me, nor to the American people, that over 70 million Americans today are either uninsured or underinsured. As we speak right now, this moment, there are millions of people in our country who would like to go to a doctor, who have to go to the doctor, but simply cannot afford to do so. This is unacceptable. This is un-American. And this cannot be allowed to happen in the wealthiest country on earth. Bottom line is that your health and your longevity, how long you live, should not be a factor of how much money you have. Health care is a human right that all Americans, regardless of income, are entitled to, and all Americans deserve the best health care that our country can provide. As chairman of the Budget Committee, it is not acceptable to me that we end up spending over twice as much per capita on health care as other major countries around the world. Something we don't see too much on TV, you don't know, read in the newspapers, you don't hear discussed here. My friends are concerned about the budget deficit, concerned about how much money we spend. Well, somebody should talk about why it is that we are spending almost twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other major country on earth, while at the same time, despite all of that expenditure, our life expectancy, how long we live, is less than most other major countries, and our health care outcomes in a number of areas lags behind other countries. Unbelievably, and I want the American people to hear this, you know, we talk about budget deficits or anything else here. Unbelievable, according to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, we are now spending $12,530 per capita on health care. You got that? $12,530 for every man, woman, and child in this country. This is an outrageous an unsustainable sum of money.
And here is the important point. In comparison, let's take a look at what other countries are spending for health care which is as good or maybe better. United Kingdom spends $5,200. Remember, we spend over $12,000. Canada spends $5,300. France spends $5,500 per person. Germany spends $6,700. All of those countries provide universal health care, i.e. for all of their people. The key question that we should be discussing as a Congress is how does it happen that we spend so much money for health care but get so little in return? Frankly, I am tired of talking to doctors, and we'll have some here today, who tell me about the patients who have died because they were uninsured or underinsured and walked into their offices too late for untreatable conditions. And let us remember, again, not widely discussed, but we have we are losing, according to the best studies, over 60,000 Americans every year who die unnecessarily because they're uninsured or underinsured. I'm tired of seeing working class families and small businesses pay far more for health care that they can afford, which forces more than 500,000 Americans to declare bankruptcy each year because of medically related expenses. In America, families should not be driven into financial ruin because somebody became seriously ill in that family. Can you imagine that? Some kid comes down with leukemia and a family goes bankrupt? Does that make any sense to anybody? I'm tired of hearing from Americans who have lost loved ones because they cannot afford the unbelievably high cost of prescription drugs. And I think every senator has talked to patients, has talked to constituents who tell them what these outrageously high cost of prescription drugs have done. One out of four patients in America cannot afford the prescription drugs their doctors provide, prescribe. You want to hear about crazy? And you want to hear about an irrational healthcare system? Crazy is when a patient walks into a doctor's office, gets a diagnosis, doctor writes out a prescription, and the patient cannot afford to fill that prescription, becomes sicker, ends up in the emergency room or the hospital at greater expense to the system. My friends, that is called crazy. I'm tired of talking with people who are struggling with mental illness but cannot afford the mental health counseling they desperately need. Last year, as you know, a record-breaking 100,000 people died of drug overdoses. And I will tell you that in my office, and I suspect the offices of every senator here, we get desperate calls from constituents who say, somebody in my family desperately needs mental health counseling. I'm worried, but far too often we cannot help them get the care that they need. It is not there because in the system, geared toward the profits of the insurance companies rather than the needs of the American people. We do not have enough psychologists and counselors. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough dentists. We don't have enough medical care providers. We spend 
twice as much as any other major country. We don't even have the health care providers that we need to take care of our people. And also, I'm tired of seeing people in my own state and around this country who are walking around with teeth rotting in their mouths because they cannot afford the dental care that they need because dental care is health care. And on and on it goes. But let's be clear about something. And this is maybe the most important point that I want to make. The current debate that we're having on health care and Medicare for all really has nothing to do with health care. Because in my view, this dysfunctional health care system cannot be rationally defended. What this debate has everything to do with is the unquenchable greed of the healthcare industry and their desire to maintain a system which fails the average American, but which makes the industry huge profits year after year after year. While ordinary Americans struggle to pay for healthcare during this pandemic, and we'll talk about the impacts of the pandemic on healthcare, the six largest health insurance companies in America last year made over $60 billion in profit, led by United Health Group, which made $24 billion in the midst of the pandemic in 2021. But it's not just the profits of the insurance companies. CEOs make exorbitant compensation packages. CEOs of 178 major healthcare companies collectively made $3.2 billion in total compensation in 2020 up 31% from 2019, all in the midst of the pandemic. According to Axios, in 2020, the CEOs of Cigna, David Kodani, took home $79 million in compensation while people died in the middle of the pandemic. In terms of the drug companies, the pharmaceutical industry, not much different. Last year, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and AbbVie, three giant pharmaceutical companies, increased their profits by over 90% to $54 billion. The CEOs of those companies also receive huge compensation packages. So that's what the debate is about. The debate we're having is whether we have a health care system which provides quality care to all in a cost-effective way, whether we have a system which makes the drug companies and the insurance companies and their executives very, very wealthy. Now, in order to defeat Medicare for all, these very powerful special insurance, the drug companies, the insurance companies, etc., have spent millions of dollars against me, against other proponents, on 30-second TV ads, full-page magazine ads, and corporate-sponsored studies to frighten the American people about Medicare for all. And I think we're going to hear some of that being discussed this morning. And this is, by the way, exactly what happened before the passage of Medicare in the 1960s, which was often attacked at that time as being socialism. Meanwhile, Medicare is today the most popular health care program in the country. Let me give you just a few examples of the kind of power we are up against when we try to create a health care system that guarantees health care for all people. Since 1998, the private healthcare sector has spent more than $10.6 billion. That's health care money that people paid. $10.6 billion on lobbying. And over the last 30 years, it has spent more than $1.7 billion on campaign con contributions to get Congress to do its bidding. We pay our health care bills. 
they take that money and they spend it on lobbying and campaign contribution. Pharmaceutical industry right now, this moment, has 1,500 paid lobbyists, including the leadership, formal leadership, of the Democratic and Republican Party, right here on Capitol Hill, doing everything they possibly can to tell us that we should not lower the cost of prescription drugs. That's how business is done in Washington. Well, I think many of us have a different idea, <coughs> and that is that maybe, just maybe, Congress should represent the American people and not lobbyists and large corporations. So what does Medicare for all do? What is it that some of my colleagues are so strongly opposed to? Well, what this legislation do again, with what many, virtually every other major country on earth does, it would provide comprehensive health care to all without out-of-pocket expenses, and unlike the current system, would allow freedom of choice regarding health care providers. No more insurance premiums, no more deductibles, no more copayments. And comprehensive means the coverage of dental care, vision, hearing aids, prescription drugs, and home and community-based care. The transition to Medicare for All program would take place over four years, First year, the benefits for older people would be expanded to include dental, vision, and hearing, and the eligibility age for Medicare would be lowered to 55. All children under the age of 18 would be covered, and gradually, over a four-year period, those programs would provide care to every American. Would a Medicare for all health care system be expensive? The answer is yes. But while providing comprehensive health care for all, it would be significantly less expensive than our current dysfunctional system because it would eliminate an enormous amount of the bureaucracy, profiteering, administrative costs, and misplaced priorities inherent in our current for-profit system. On the Medicare for all, there would no longer be armies of people billing us telling us what is covered and what is not covered, and insurance agents hounding us to pay our hospital bills. This would not only save substantial sums of money that will make life a lot easier for the American people who would never again have to fight their way through the nightmare of insurance company bureaucracy and experience, I think, that almost all Americans have gone through. In fact, the Congressional Budget Office, and we're going to hear from them later this morning, has estimated that Medicare for All would save Americans $650 billion a year. So for my friends who are worried about the deficit, any chump change, $650 billion a year is real money. Now, trust me, I do know this 30-second ads that will be coming from the insurance and drug companies that will tell you that if Medicare for all becomes law, your taxes will go up, and they are correct. But they won't, they won't tell you is that on the Medicare for all, you will no longer be paying premiums, deductibles, and co-payments to private health insurance companies. And what they certainly won't be telling you is that Medicare for all will save the average American family thousands of dollars a year. Medicare for all will save the average American family thousands of dollars a year. Guaranteeing health care as a right is important to the American people, not just from a moral and financial perspective. It also happens to be what the majority of the American people want.
2020, 69% of the American people supported providing Medicare to every American. Let me conclude, and I thank my colleagues for their indulgence, and Senator Graham will have as much time as he wants. This is an issue not just of health care. This is an issue about what kind of nation we are. It's an issue whether we're going to turn our backs on 60,000 people a year who die because they cannot get the health care that they need, turn our backs on the fact that we live shorter lives than people in other countries, turn our backs and that we are spending almost twice as much per capita on health care as the people of other nations. This is an issue that has to be dealt with. Medicare for all will become the law of the land, if not now, but in the future because this is what the American people want. And with that, uh, let me thank Senator Graham for being here and give the mic over to him. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, This is an important debate, important hearing, important topic. So it has tremendous budget impact and great panel, five panelists. Um, uh, We're going to be, we have Dr. Adam Gaffney, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, uh, Ms. Monica Castillo, Dr. Charles Blahas, and uh, Ms. Grace Marie Turner. Uh, let us begin with Dr. Adam Gaffney. Uh, Dr. Gaffney is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a pulmonary and critical care physician, and a health policy research uh, researcher. His research focuses on national health care reform, health care equity, and disparities in lung health. Dr. Gaffney, thanks very much for being with us, sir. Thank you, Chairman Sanders, um, Ranking Senator Graham, and all of the members of the Budget Committee uh, for the opportunity to discuss this pressing issue with you today. So for the past two years, I have been treating patients with COVID-19 in the intensive care unit uh, where I work as a critical care physician. Some of them like one million other Americans, did not survive. But those experiences have reinforced my belief that our nation needs transformative health care reform, a Medicare for All program that would end much of the medical and financial suffering I have witnessed. One of my patients awakened after a long stretch on a ventilator, and their first words I later learned were an expression of fear about medical bills. Back then, there was at least a federal program that existed that would cover the cost of COVID-19 treatment for the uninsured. That program is now defunct. Today, Americans with COVID-19, just like Americans with cancer, with any illness or injury, can face bankruptcy because of medical bills. One in five U.S. households are carrying medical debt, which now exceeds all other forms of debt sent to collection agencies in this the richest nation in the world. Medical debt should not exist. And in many other countries, it basically doesn't. It is the consequence of the irrational way our country finances medical care. But the problem is not only families ruined by healthcare costs. It is worsened health due to inadequate care. Today, 30 million Americans are uninsured. These patients go without needed care day in and day out, and their health suffers because of it. In the ICU, I have cared for patients critically ill with failing hearts, failing kidneys, fluid in their lungs. 
because they couldn't afford routine care for common problems like high blood pressure or diabetes. And my experience is not unique. A multitude of rigorous studies have demonstrated that uninsurance is lethal. Indeed, it causes well more than 30,000 deaths every year. However, uninsurance is not our only problem, far from it, in fact. More than 40 million working-age Americans are underinsured. They're covered, but still fear unaffordable bills because of high copays, deductibles, uncovered services, and out-of-network care. And here, too, conclusive research has found dire consequences. Heart attack patients who delay going to the emergency room, risking sudden death, and children who end up hospitalized because their parents couldn't afford the co-payments for their asthma medications. Sadly, I have also witnessed the consequences of underinsurance in my work. Seniors with lung disease who have rationed uh, their expensive inhalers because of high co-pays, patients who've rationed their insulin and ended up with severe complications of diabetes. Typically, it is only after becoming severely ill that patients realize that their insurance is riddled with holes. Even if you have coverage, unless you're Elon Musk, you could be one illness or injury away from financial ruin. Now, Medicare for All would solve each of these problems, allowing us to cover everyone and at the same time to improve the quality of coverage, eliminating copays, deductibles, and narrow insurance networks. It would finally give patients real choice, not the bogus choice between an Aetna or a United Health Plan, but the real choice of doctor, clinic, or hospital. Now, I've indicated some of the medical benefits of Medicare for all four, um, but the economics are, of course, also quite relevant. This reform would uniquely produce the savings needed to cover the costs of such a major expansion of care as I've described without breaking the bank. The simple fact is that there is enormous bureaucratic waste in American health care, waste borne by both patients and clinicians. Of every dollar we spend on health care, 34 cents goes to administration and bureaucracy, twice the proportion in Canada. Much of that waste is inflicted by private health insurers. While only 2% of traditional Medicare spending goes to overhead, private health insurance companies' profits and overhead consumes 12% or more of our premiums. And much of that overhead is spent on contesting claims and denying care to patients. The bureaucratic burden of, Amer of American health care explains the CBO's estimate that Medicare for All would achieve more than $400 billion a year in savings by, insure by reducing insurance waste alone. And in contrast, some outdated and inaccurate economic analyses have lowballed such savings, leading to spurious claims that single-payer reform would break the bank. Make no mistake, Senators, the economics matter, and as a health policy researcher, I spend a lot of time thinking about them. But what matters to me most as a physician is creating a health care system that will support me in delivering top quality care to all of my patients during this pandemic and thereafter. I became an ICU doctor because I wanted to care for the sickest of the sick, but I should not be seeing desperately ill patients who could have avoided the ICU altogether if they had gotten the care they needed. Those patients have been failed by a broken system that puts the prerogatives of health insurance executives over the health and welfare of ordinary Americans. Medicare for All can solve the problems of our health care system, covering everyone, improving the quality of coverage, expanding choice, controlling costs, and most importantly, improving our health and longevity. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Gafting. Uh, our next panelist is uh, Ms. Bonnie Castillo. Uh, Ms. Castillo is a registered nurse and the executive director of the National Nurses United and of the California Nurses Association National Nurses Organizing Committee. NNU is the largest union and professional association of registered nurses in the United States, representing more than 175,000 nurses. And I just want to take this opportunity uh, to thank all of the nurses in this country and the doctors as well. We have lost, we have lost thousands, I think, as we all know. I heard this morning at least 5,000 nurses have died uh, in this pandemic alone. These are the real heroes and heroines of our time, and we thank them very much. Uh, Ms. Castillo, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And good morning. And thank you, Chairman Sanders, Ranking Member Graham, and members of the committee for holding this critically important hearing today. As a registered nurse and executive director of the nation's largest union of RNs, I can think of nothing more fitting to commemorate International Nurses Day today than by advocating for the urgent transition to a Medicare for All system. For more than two years, nurses across the country have worked on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. We have cared for patients despite atrocious working conditions that put nurses and our families at risk. If it was ever in doubt before, this pandemic has shown that our current profit-driven and fragmented healthcare system does not work. It does not provide quality therapeutic care to millions of Americans. It does not value and protect its own healthcare workers, and it is unable to provide a comprehensive pandemic response. Why didn't nurses and healthcare workers get the protections we needed in the pandemic? was because our employers value money over our lives. Why didn't we have the emergency stocks of critical medical supplies that we needed? Because the healthcare industry plans, makes their plans, their supply chains based on maximizing profit, not safeguarding patient care. We have seen high death rates from COVID across the country. Why? because there are tens of millions of people in the country who are uninsured or underinsured and who therefore do not get the preventive care they need, putting them at much higher risk for severe COVID illness, hospitalization, and death. But the problems with our healthcare system far predate this pandemic. For years, nurses have witnessed the tragedies that result from a profit-driven healthcare system. Nurses watch uh, far too many, so many patients forego needed care because they can't afford the cost. They watch as insurance companies deny life-saving care, overriding the professional judgment of nurses and other medical professionals. Nurses watch as patients come to the emergency room with advanced stages of illness or disease that could have been avoided if they had had access to preventive care. The system we have now is beholden to the corporate interests that determine who gets treatment and when they get it. The United States spends more money per capita on healthcare than any other nation in the world. And yet we have the worst health outcomes when compared to other wealthy countries. 
This system is unaffordable for our country and for our patients. And the pandemic has shown that our society cannot afford the public health consequences. The only way to solve the healthcare crisis is to enact a single payer Medicare for all system. Under Medicare for all, every person living in the United States would get a quality therapeutic healthcare regardless of the ability to pay. We would transform the profit-driven health insurance system into one that actually prioritizes patient care. As a registered nurse, I can envision exactly what Medicare for all would mean for patients. Whenever someone needs medical care, they would see the healthcare provider of their choice without any worry about financial barriers to care. We would no longer see patients suffer because they can't afford care. Patients would no longer have to actually ration their medications. For healthcare workers, we would be able to provide medical and nursing care based on our professional judgment without the interference of insurance companies. The Medicare for All Act would allow for tangible practical practical improvements to the healthcare delivery, and importantly, it would change the way that hospitals are paid, fundamentally shifting their profit motives so that they prioritize patient care and worker health and safety instead. By paying hospitals through global budgets, the bill would ensure that hospitals have the funding necessary for safe nurse-to-patient staffing ratios, pandemic preparedness, and occupational safety and health programs. The programs would ensure that hospitals in rural and underserved areas always get the funding they need to stay open. And it's designed to address healthcare inequities at their core by changing the systems that limit healthcare for low-income communities and particularly for communities of color. As registered nurses, our primary responsibility is to protect the health and well-being of our patients. Our existing healthcare system does not allow us to do that. Medicare for all is the solution we need to ensure that every patient gets the healthcare they need. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Castillo, thank you very much. Um, our next panelist is Dr. Abdul El Said was a physician, epidemiologist, and educator. Uh, he is a Townsley Foundation policymaker in residence at the University of Michigan, Gerald Ford School of Public Policy. Formerly, he was health director for the city of Detroit, where he was responsible for the public health needs of over 670,000 people in that city. Dr. Elsie, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Chairman Sanders. Got it. Chairman Sanders, Ranking uh, Member Graham, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. Uh, my name is Dr. Abdul El Sayed. I trained as a physician and epidemiologist and served the city of Detroit as health director, where one of my responsibilities was rebuilding a health department that had been shut down during the Great Recession. Today, I teach at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. There, I find myself explaining the haphazard dysfunction of our current healthcare system to some of the brightest young minds in the country. What's a deductible? Well, it's like having to pay an extra $19.99 to watch a movie on Netflix that you thought you already paid for. Only this time, it's for your basic health care needs, and it's thousands of dollars. 
They remind me how much nonsense we accept as normal in healthcare. It's partly why I recently wrote a book on the very subject, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide with Dr. Micah Johnson, and I furnished a copy to each one of your offices. I want to start with the two most obvious problems in American healthcare, incomplete coverage and spiraling costs. To under understand them, I want to correct a basic misunderstanding of how we approach healthcare in this country. We like to think of ourselves as consumers, as customers, but we're not. Let me just share how being a customer works, just to review. Let's say you want some tomatoes. You go to your local farmer's market, you find a stall with some you like, you ask the seller for the price, and if that price is too high, you walk away. But if it's good, it's fair, you buy, you tender your payment, you get your tomatoes, that is a normal customer experience. But healthcare is not that. If I were to have a heart attack right now, in this room, I'd be rushed to the nearest hospital with no choice of what hospital I go to. I'd have no choice of what doctor I see, what treatment I get, no one shows me a price list, and I have no opportunity to just walk away if I don't like anything, I'm having a heart attack after all. Afterwards, a bill is not sent to me. It's sent to a third party, my insurer. And rather than being the initiator and completer of a financial transaction, I'm the reason a financial transaction happens between my insurer and my provider. So ask yourself, given the usual customer experience, are we as American healthcare consumers, are we the customers or are we the tomatoes? Healthcare is simply just not a market product. The health insurance industry assures that. You might expect insurance companies to want to negotiate healthcare costs downward. After all, they are the payer, but they don't. It's one of the unintended consequences of the so-called 80-20 rule, requiring health insurance companies to spend at least 80% of what they collect on premiums in healthcare. After all, ask yourself, what's the best way to grow your 20% piece of the pie? Make sure you've got a bigger pie. So they make the pie bigger and they pass those costs back on to us in the form of, of premiums and deductibles. Premiums have risen faster than inflation and wages over the past decade, and deductibles have more than doubled, and those are dangerous. One study found that high deductibles was associated with a nine-month delay in getting treatment for breast cancer. The operative part of the word insurance is supposed to be sure, but in our for-profit system, you can't really be sure of anything. And those, those are the first-class healthcare citizens. There are, of course, the second-class healthcare citizens, over 100 million of them, 28 million who are uninsured, 87 million who are on Medicaid, a critical but underfunded lifeline program. Medicaid reimburses far lower than private health insurance, so a lot of providers just don't accept it. Now, here's the thing. Reimbursing the same exact health care services at lower rates reflects an implicit lack of value of the body for which that health care is being provided. You cannot deny it. And those bodies in this country are disproportionately black and brown, disproportionately rural. Meanwhile, the prices keep rising. Corporations keep making money when they do. And we spend more than $12,000 per capita per year on health care, more than twice as much as our counterparts in Canada. They live four years longer on average, by the way. In the pandemic, it demonstrated that coverage and costs aren't our only issues. Early on, healthcare workers struggled without ventilators or beds or basic PPE. 27 million Americans lost their employer-sponsored health insurance with their jobs. Local and state health departments and the CDC struggled under the weight because they were already anemic from the disinvestment during the Great Recession. So despite the need for more beds, 21 hospitals shut down in 2020 alone. That's that's including 73 over the past decade, four in Senator Graham's South Carolina alone. But guess what industry had a banner year in 2020? The health insurance industry. They got to keep all of the money that didn't get spent on elective procedures, which, by the way, are why those hospitals shut down. American life expectancy dropped 25 years, wiping, actually dropped by three years, wiping out 25 years of growth. So what did we learn? Even with private 
insurance coverage, it's not durable. It's liable to be lost to you, precarious, as we saw in the pandemic. American consumers are losing their healthcare choices through hospital closures and mergers and acquisitions, which, by the way, allow large healthcare systems to exploit workers, including nurses and doctors. And we're failing to invest in public health. Now, the genius of Medicare for All isn't just that it solves coverage and cost. It's that a universal national health insurance program for everyone offers a solution for each of these problems. Medicare for All is the clearest pathway to universal, durable health care insurance, Barna. Cradle to grave coverage would do away with the premiums, co-pays, deductibles that leave even privately insured Americans rationing their health care today, just like they do every day in America. Medicare for All would expand health care choices by limiting hospital mergers, acquisitions, and shutdowns that threaten those choices and empower, and, and empower mammoth health care systems in the process. It would also empower health care workers. And it finally addresses the misincentives that we have to invest in prevention and public health. So to conclude, opponents of Medicare for All are going to tell us all of the same fear-mongering arguments we've actually already heard today. They're going to say that Medicare for All would eliminate health care choices, but really it is critical to preserving the choices Americans actually care about, which are the choice of doctor, the choice of clinic, the choice of hospital. They'll say we can't afford it when American families cannot afford the system that we have today. What about innovation, they'll ask. Well, providers stay private under Medicare for All, never mind the fact that our federal government is the most important funder of biomedical uh, research in the world. But rationing, what about rationing, they'll say. Well, out-of-pocket costs are forcing Americans to ration health care every day in the current system. They'll tell us that Medicare for All is somehow un-American. But what really is un-American is staring at our broken health care system in the face while it's breaking people in the process and choosing to look away. Today, you're choosing to stare it in its cruel, indifferent face. And I commend you for doing this. And I hope that I've offered some insights into how and why it's broken and how Medicare for All is the solution to fix it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Elsie. Uh, our next panel. Again, we hope you can join us on the trip to Washington, D.C. at the end of July, July 30th. Let Kay Tillo, our chairperson, know if you need a ride. Kay's email address is nursenpo at aol.com. That's nursenpo at aol.com. In addition to advocating for a Medicare for All system, we're also resisting the Wall Street takeover of our current Medicare program. And you can learn more about our efforts and what we need help with. You can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. And uh, Harriet Seiler also has a lot of great info up on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley.